The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Today is highly recognized for his great journeys across the world. Significantly, the Great Peace Walk of 1962, during which he was joined by friend D.P. Menon, an experience that would take them 8,000 miles across the globe, visiting the then four capitals of the nuclear world. He's since become an author of many books written on spirituality, ecology, and the human position, and in 1973 he became editor of the well recognized Resurgence magazine after moving to Devon, England, where he has lived ever since. He's been awarded three honorary doctorates for his work in literature, law and education and joins me by telephone today from his home in England. Dr. Satish Kumar, welcome to you. Pleasure to be on your program. Absolutely, likewise. I'm absolutely taken aback by your journey what wonderful guests we have on this program, and I'm so excited about our time together here. And, of course, as we talked about prior to the program, I do provide these program notes and try and structure these as well as possible to allow our listeners to have a sense of synergy and a chronological order of of your life. Thank you. Those notes were very helpful. Super. Well, I would like to start off with, and this will be expanded upon as we travel through the program, uh, just a two-minute overview from you of your present work today. My present work is to bring the soil, the soul, and the society together. Soil, soul, and society. These are the three dimensions which are essential for our survival and for existence and for our um, transformation. So first of all, we have to take care of the soil because we are made of the soil. All our food comes from the soil. And uh, if our soil, which also means the whole natural world, is in good heart, then our soul can also be nourished. And when our soul is nourished and we are filled with compassion, love, and, and the generosity, then our society can be fulfilled and can succeed and can be happy. So I try to bring these three words, soil, soul, and society, to clinch my work, which is expanding into many fields, such as Resurgence Magazine, Schumacher College, and my lectures and teachings. That is fascinating to me, and we won't touch on it quite yet, because it does take us into the sustainability arguments and the present concerns over the severe climate changes and and, uh, ways in which scientists are looking at uh, different forms of farming 
with all the scientific evidence that they have today. What I would like to start with, however, is simply going back to your childhood. I realize that up to the age of nine, uh, you lived at home with with your mother uh, and your family, of course, was very religious. Um, And no doubt they had a tremendous influence on your life. And it was your mother, and always correct me, uh, please do, who actually introduced you to the Jain religion. If indeed it, I should specify it as a religion, maybe you'll want to expand upon that. No, absolutely. But- my mother was a Jain, and my family uh, is a Jain family. So I was born in Jain family. And Jain religion is contemporary to the Buddhist religion. And uh, the founder of Jain religion was contemporary to the Buddha. And the principle of Jain religion is non-violence and inclusiveness. These are the two main principles. Do no harm to yourself, do no harm to other people, and do no harm to the natural world. That is a complete and total non-violence. And then secondly, inclusivity, so that your truth is not the only truth. Respect other people's truth, other people's opinions. And there are many ways of knowing, many ways of understanding the world. There's no one way, and therefore you must not become dogmatic and and make one single truth as your truth, the right truth, and the only truth. These are the two main principles of of Jain religion. And my mother was a great uh, follower. And and, uh, although she was not uh, a scholar or she was not uh, um, uh, a literate person, she did not read, write, and so on, but she knew the stories and she knew the songs and the poetry and she knew the philosophy by heart. So it was more, uh, she was more a part of oral culture of Jain religion. And so through her, I learned the Jain principles. We have not as yet mentioned your father. Where was your father in this? Now, my father passed away, died when I was only four years old. So I don't have much memory of my father. The only memory, the last memory I have of my father is seeing him lying in state and not speaking to me and not moving, and not walking with me, as he used to. And, and I remember my mother crying, and my sisters, and brothers, and other family members crying. And I was in uh, sort of puzzle to not, to not knowing what was happening, why father was not talking to me, why mother and, and sister and brothers we're crying. I want to keep on track, obviously, and, and keep persisting on here with the, the story. But may I just ask you, uh, clearly there, and, and I'm very much one who talks about the importance on childhood uh, that we take with us through our entire lives. Yeah. For you, looking back in re- retrospect and being very brief about this, what is the implication especially, I suppose, as much for a girl as a boy. But what is that implication on on you, not necessarily at the time of your passing of your father, but, but in the years following, is that not something that you miss out on terribly? But the impression and the, the lasting impression uh, of uh, my father's death and the first uh, kind of memory of that 
particular event has stayed with me and I have always been uh, in search of a life where one can come to terms with death. And that has been a lasting impression. So I am always uh, trying to understand how one can fear not death. How can we come to terms with death and even welcome death? So that has been the most important impression. And these are words that I'd like to examine uh, later in the program, especially the the words of forgiveness and fear. But continuing here, I had posed this question to you. Having been a photographer in my past and, and very passionate about photography and the arts, I know the difference between, not only as a photographer, as a human being, the difference between looking and seeing and i had posed this question to you in those years up to joining the monastery what was it then looking back that you you really were seeing i was seeing a great uh, sense of sorrow and particularly because i loved my mother and therefore i saw my mother in pain and sorrow and a sense of loss and and that made me very sad even though i was only four years old but i could not bear to see my mother crying i had never seen my mother crying in that way so i said to my mother what has gone wrong why are you crying and she said now your father will never be back so i said what is death? And so my mother said that everyone who is born will die. So I said, Mother, will you die? And she said, Yes, I will also die one day. And then I said, And will I die? And Mother said, Yes, you will also die. And that made me so shocked that is there a way that we can uh, sort of stop us dying and live an immortal life although I was only four years old but that was the first thought first question in my mind uh, that I remember we clearly want to move on here but let me just pose this one other question to you yeah do you still see that in your mind as vividly now carry that with you as vividly now as a man of great wisdom in your later years uh, we all grow we all gain wisdom no, but do, I you, do. do you still I have do. that now that, that uh, scene of my father lying dead my mother crying and i talking to her that scene is almost like a photograph it's a kind of photographic memory in my head at this moment. I can remember that scene, although I was only four years old, but that's a very clear memory I have. Now, your mother actually understood the Jane Brotherhood, mm. and she was obviously acted as a catalyst. I had suggested mm. this in the note and informed you, educated you, and you decided to leave the family and go into the monastery. Was she supportive of that? No, the, the reason that I decided to become a monk was related to this very first question that I asked my mother about death. When she took me to meet the Jain monks, I asked them that my father is dead, my mother is sad, 
and, and full of sorrow and loneliness. Is there a way, can you tell me a way by which people stop dying? That was the question which actually and eventually led me to become a monk. Yes. Because the monks said that the only way one can be free of the cycle of birth and death is to renounce the world and become a monk. And when you become so pure uh, by renouncing the world that when you die, you become immortal. Uh, take nirvana, you take moksha, yes. and, and you become immortal. You never come back. Then there's no birth, there's no death. And that sentence stuck in my mind. And I said to my mother, that mother, I want to become a monk. And by becoming monk, I can stop dying and being born. And I'd like to, to follow up that in a couple of minutes, not countering it, but following up with it. Now, you are in the monastery for some nine years, mm. and I'd like to ask you the question, however, they call themselves the wandering monks. Yeah. Now, and I had suggested in my notes, is this defining them as nomadic or on the move? And I'm probably wrong with that. But could you explain why that word is used? The, the wandering monks are... I would say pilgrims, uh, because for the monks, life is a pilgrimage. Wandering and nomadic life is a more, you can say, pragmatic way of describing it. But in the spiritual sense, the, as monks, we are going through a pilgrimage in life. Whole life is a pilgrimage. And therefore, uh, if you become static in one place, you become attached to that place. So you as monk remain moving on pilgrimage like a river. So river meanders through hills and valleys and forests and, and, and so on, taking other tributaries, but keeps going. So it's rather metaphoric in a way. It's a mind-thought process. Yes. I have had the great honor in past years of talking to monks, especially in England. I remember sometime at the Prinknash Abbey near Stroud. Yeah. And I'm going to follow up on, on their comments, and possibly uh, we will have a synergy there. So I have been there. It is a, a quite stunning, wonderful, stunning wonderful place. Monastery. I can remember Dad taking me there first time in the 70s, and we would come away with Prinknash... Um, cups and saucers and pewter, and it was a, a marvelous experience on many occasions. So I've, I understand your reasons for uh, becoming a monk and uh, joining the monastery because of their way of life. They, yeah. they, they do not seek possessions. They, they don't seek um, Attachment. uh, attachments or possessions, which is something we'll talk about later in the program, which is uh, certainly a dire problem that we have in our consumerism-led world now. Um, but in, in a way, because of your father's death, for you personally, was it still in some ways running away uh, from, from that, bad, um, that bad dream, almost, that memory? Um, you can say that um, as a monk, I looked at the world as a trap, a bondage. And if I wanted liberation, 
and be on a pilgrimage, I had to escape from that trap and that bondage. And when um, I am free of that, free of the world, then I can pursue my search for spiritual liberation and existence without this without being in the cycle of birth and death. And, and so you can call it a kind of escape, uh, but, um, but there was a positive outlook towards being a monk as a pilgrim, pursuing the path on a quest for spiritual liberation. I suppose that the human psyche, the human position... Uh, is it not always a fine line? We, no. we even today we see people uh, in fear, um, and we see people running, and I think that's possibly part of the the human makeup. Uh, but my other question that I had posed to you in the notes is: when you looked at the monastery, you looked at this religion. Were you making your assessments based upon? them as being human beings or or the light or the dynamics or the force behind them was it that that really attracted you no what attracted me was that i can be free of burdens of the world and i can be light-footed so tread lightly and live with just one change of clothes and, and a two or three bagging bowls, um, one for water, one for um, dry food like uh, bread and rice and so on, and maybe other with some um, vegetables or, 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 or something of that nature. So that was with bagging bowls in my hands and one change of clothes and maybe some handwritten manuscripts, um, no other books. I carried just some handwritten uh, spiritual texts. So that was the whole possession in my life. And when I went for, uh, for my food, uh, I went to a house, to another house, to another house, and I collected food from three or four or five houses. So I will take only little from one place and, um, and uh, never too much. I was, it was compared with a, a honeybee, like a honeybee goes from flower to flower to flower, taking a little nectar here, a little nectar there, never too much, so that never ever a flower can complain that uh, honeybee took too much nectar away. So a monk has to take food from various homes, like a honeybee. And so that way, I could feel a sense of lightness in my, my life, and a sense of freedom that I could just go and take the food, and I don't have to work for it, I don't have to earn for it, I don't have to dig the, the soil or land or cultivate or plow or do... So that kind of uh, pursuit of spiritual um, liberation without any obstacle, without any worry about how am I going to survive. And in India, um, begging monks have a kind of respect. And people are uh, of the view that uh, giving alms to monks is, um, uh, is a, a, a 
purifying experience. May, and may, so that way, I was able to live a life that was very light and may, very detached. May I make an assumption here? Uh, wrong or right, and uh, obviously you're going to correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, but during this period, I'm sensing that that really was the time when you received an intensity around the whole ecological world. That is where it started. I would say the seeds of ecological world and ecological worldview were sown at that time because how one can live simply and lightly without harming any uh, other creatures, practicing non-violence to nature as much as non-violence to people and oneself. So the seeds were sown at that time. And later on in my life, when I came across in a more kind of um, real world, where I realized how uh, the consumer materialistic uh, society is, is moving, then those seeds became much more, uh, much more open and much more a kind of, much more like a tree. <laughs> See, it An became a tree. indefinable, mysterious power that pervades everything. I feel it, though I Th do This not is see. interesting to me because yeah. we are talking about the profoundness of balance in life. And I have been quite well read with Gandhi. What an amazing man. And he was looking for that, was he not? He was looking for, and I was just going to say here that in my conversations with monks, there have been those who have said, you know, you can go too far in the opposite direction uh, in seeking balance, in seeking this amazing peace. You can actually make it so excessive that you become too insular. Absolutely. I mean, I lived the life of a monk for nine years and without any challenge or any doubt or any problem. And I felt that I am on the right path. But then, as you mentioned, Mahatma Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi actually uh, had a great influence on my thinking at that time. And when I was 18 years old, I came across his autobiography. And when I read that book, that changed my uh, way of thinking. And, and Mahatma Gandhi, exactly as you put it, said that if uh, spirituality is only possible for the monks, then the majority of the world can never practice spirituality. So spirituality becomes a, a, an elite pursuit yes, yes. for the few, chosen few. Whereas um, we need to bring spirituality for everybody and in everyday life, in every single activity. We have to transform our ordinary, daily, worldly activities into spiritual activity. Otherwise, people will think that you have to become a monk. Spirituality is only for the saints. And since we cannot become monk, we cannot be spiritual. And this dichotomy, this, this kind of a problem, uh, he wanted to solve. Mahatma Gandhi said, that let us bring spirituality it into the world. unseen power which makes itself felt and yet defies all proof because it is so unlike all that I perceive 
through my senses. And, this, and that inspired me. Yes, and this this is a dilemma, frankly, for society today. But you, you eventually left the monastery uh, because you are seeking to retain the principles, the inner light, the inner hope. Yes. I'm the, seeking to retain the spirituality. But actually combine it in a social sense, in a, a real world in sense. In the real world. And that, is, that must be tremendously difficult, that transition coming from such a closed order. Yeah, it was very difficult. Uh, but Mahatma Gandhi said that if, we, if spirituality has any real place and a real future in the lives of people, then we have to make our politics spiritual, our agriculture spiritual, our business and, 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 uh, and, and economics uh, spiritual. Everything has to be transformed and our intention has to become spiritual so that whatever activities we do, we do it with a, with a sense of service, with a sense of caring and compassion. And that was so inspiring that in spite of my um, vow to be a monk and remain a monk for all of my life, in spite of this commitment, I was so challenged and I was so moved that uh, that whole night after reading that book, I could not sleep. I tossing and turning and thinking, what should I do? I was in a great dilemma. And in the end, my decision was that I have to give up this uh, closed monastic order and, and practice spirituality in the daily life, in the worldly life, uh, in everyday uh, world. So I, and so I, one, uh, next night after midnight, I left the monastery. Almost, I escaped the monastery. As I escaped the world um, to become a monk, I, I escaped the monastery to come back in the world. perceive that whilst everything around me is ever-changing, ever-dying, there is underlying all that change a living power that is changeless, that holds all together, that creates, dissolves, I suppose then, in a way, that Gandhi almost became your hero. Maybe that's the, not a good way to define it, but he certainly became a, a great pivotal character in your life. And I yes, want to yes, reference... He became, he became my inspiration, my mentor, um, uh, my guide. You can say in my life, he became a guide. Almost, you can. Although uh, when I left monastery. Uh, um, Mahatma Gandhi was already dead, so he was not alive. But his um, thoughts and his his message became a kind of beacon for me, and it guided the uh, rest of my life. And even now, I am guided with some of those uh, Gandhi's principles. Let me ask you this question. In November 2001, and I am not going to pr be able to pronounce this properly, uh, Jamnalal Bajar International Award uh, for Gandhian Values Abroad. No, I you have pronounced it correctly. Oh, good Lord. Yeah. Um, super. Uh, what I'd like to ask you, just for the listeners, very briefly, is can you give me the maybe the four or five bullet point objectives that Gandhi had? Yes. 
the most important uh, principle of Gandhi, the number one, is same as the Jain principle of non-violence. But the Jain principle of non-violence is much more a personal non-violence. But Mahatma Gandhi said, and that guides me now in my social and ecological work, that non-violence has to be social and political. Non-violence is not uh, just passivity. It's a passive resistance. And that is something uh, that is uh, um, inspiring many movements around the world, including uh, the civil rights movement of Martin Luther King and uh, anti-apartheid movement of Nelson Mandela and the free Tibet movement of the Dalai Lama and the green movement in Germany and, and Europe uh, everywhere and uh, Eastern Europe and, uh, and the liberation in the Soviet Union. So uh, all around the world, that resistance through nonviolent means has become one of the most important Gandhian principles which inspires me. Then, of course, the second principle is that we need to, uh, to reduce our greed and live within our limits. Because at the moment, this idea of economic growth and high living standard and greater and greater consumption of material um, objects and more material stuff we have, uh, we consider ourselves richer and, and higher living standard. Gandhi challenged that. Gandhi said that we have to, uh, to find elegant simplicity. And in elegant simplicity lies true richness. The money is not wealth. The wealth is good air, good water, good forest, uh, healthy animals, healthy communities, and, and happiness. That is a true wealth. Uh, health is wealth, not money is wealth. This so is that is a very important second principle which Mahatma Gandhi inspired. And, 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 and I have followed that ever since. Let me ask you this, though. Clearly, this was deeply in his mindset. And my goodness me, this man... He knew how to combine social and political work. He had a fight. He, he, he had pressure. I'm sure that at times it was torture. But a lot of those principles, would I be right in say, saying, came about because of the empire, because of the occupation, until we, uh, Englishmen, finally left in 1949, I believe. Was that part of his makeup? That was, that was a good uh, opportunity and a good occasion the empire, because uh, India wanted to be liberated from the empire. But even before he fought against the British colonialism and the British empire, he was in South Africa. And there he fought against the apartheid and against the discrimination um, uh, of the black people and the colored people, the Indian community. So he organized Satyagraha, the civil uh, disobedience and, um, and uh, non-violent uh, passive resistance, even before uh, he came back to Eng uh, India and, and fought against the empire. And um, Philip Glass has written a beautiful uh, opera called Satyagraha, based on Gandhi's idea yes. of passive resistance. Yes. So this was somehow in Gandhi's makeup, and he was very inspired by Tolstoy, he was very inspired by Henry David Thoreau, and, uh, and many other similar who would uh, not great be. thinkers. <laughs> who would not be? I mean, they, they were amazing individuals yes. for their time. Yeah. And, and I wanted to add to that that I, what I thought that was so amazing about Gandhi is that he really was a man 
for the people. I mean, he was well read in Arabic, from what I remember, uh, if it, my memory serves me well. He knew he the, studied he, Quran. He, he knew the Quran. Yes. Uh, he studied the Bible. And he studied the Bible. And, and w- w- was he attempting to be universally light? Is, was that his idea, that he didn't that want to put any fences his, up? That was not the purpose of his work, that he should be liked uh, universally, but that it was the result. That was the consequence of his uh, inclusive, universal uh, spirit. And he did not want religious people especially to become dogmatic and fight uh, Hindus and Muslims and Christians and, and Hindus and Christians and Muslims and Buddhists and Jains and Jains and Sikhs. Yes. He said that as far as um, the spirituality is concerned, that is common to all. Uh, like the spirit- ocean of spirituality. We all swim in the same ocean of spirituality. And all the clouds um, take uh, the steam and, and the water from the same ocean of spirituality and, and form the rain. And that rain goes uh, and, uh, and dr- falls in different rivers and form the rivers of religions. So the, 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 the different names of religions are like different rivers. Uh, they can be uh, geographically based. Uh, one river can be big, one river can be small, one river can be long, uh, one river can be wide, one uh, river can be different shapes and sizes. But eventually they all uh, come from the ocean and return to the ocean. So religions should be uh, like that. They should all come from the spiritual uh, unity of life. Um, and that spiritual unity is inspired by love, compassion, generosity, a sense of the spirit, a sense of the service, a sense of the sacred. Those are the spiritual qualities. And if you become dogmatic and fight whose river is greater than uh, the other uh, and whose religion is greater than the other, that kind of fight is futile. And that um, inclusivity and generosity of spirit made him uh, universal man, and therefore he was liked universally. But even then, there were some narrow-minded Hindus who did not like him uh, embracing other religions like Christians and Muslims, and therefore one fanatic Hindu uh, shot at him and killed him in the end. Yes, and a very, very sad uh, time that was. I'm going to move on very quickly here. Yeah. Um, I realize that I, I can't remember uh, from my notes, I believe around uh, 54, 53, that you met Vinoba Bhav. And yeah. then uh, and, and he was a, a great influence on you. But I'm more interested uh, going on another step to Lord Bertrand Russell. I had studied this man. Yeah. He was quite an eccentric, was he not? Um, he was a great uh, philosopher great mathematician, but politically you can say he was more a radical uh, thinker rather than an extremist. I would call him a radical thinker. In British uh, society, and he a, was quite out of place. Activist. Yes, but in, in, in British society, he, he was quite out of place and, and ahead of his time in many ways, would you not say? Uh, he was ahead of time, and in English society, you can call him a bit eccentric uh, <laughs> because uh, he would not uh, sort of adhere or, or conform to the British uh, class system and the British etiquette and the British reserve. He was a very uh, um, outspoken and, and, and a quite a fearless uh, critic 
of the uh, establishment and in that way and when he was uh, fighting for the uh, for the uh, movement against the, the the weapons against the nuclear weapons against the bomb uh, he became very um, much sort of cr- uh, criticized um, by the press and so on, that how Lord Russell going against the government and against the establishment. But he, uh, he went uh, in the um, center of London, Trafalgar Square, and then he went to the White Hall, where the seat of the government, and sat down and said, unless and until the British government bans the bomb and declares that there will be no more um, funding for nuclear weapons, I will not move. That was his Gandhian civil disobedience. And of course, he and finished he up arrested. in jail uh, for huh? that. From what I, I remember him finishing up in jail for that. Yeah, he was he was in jail. And when he was in jail, and I was sitting in India, and I read this in my newspapers there, Indian newspapers, that ninety-year-old. Uh, 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 Lord Burton Russell, Nobel Prize winning mathematician, was put in jail because he was protesting against the bomb and working for peace. That, when I read that, I was absolutely amazed and, and I, I was inspired and also moved. And I said to my friend who was sitting beside me, E.P. Menon, and we were drinking coffee uh, in, a, in a restaurant. And I said to my friend, the look, Menon, here is a man of 90 going to jail for peace in the world. What are we doing, young men, sitting here drinking coffee? The, and when, we, 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 when Men and I talked about it, in the end, we said, let's do something to support this peace movement and, and the movement of Bertrand Russell against the nuclear weapons. And, of course and that, that was the moment when we decided to walk to four nuclear capitals of the world, Moscow, Paris, London, and Washington, D.C. There must be an irony in that, that this man who blessed your journey finished up in jail himself. And then on this journey in Paris, you yourself finish up in jail. Did you see the irony in that? There is. There is a great irony because... Um, uh, but at the same time, I was very pleased in that irony because I said that we were inspired by Bertrand Russell and he went to jail and our great mentor Mahatma Gandhi was in jail and therefore spending a few days in Paris jail um, while protesting against the, the nuclear testing of the French government uh, is a good blessing. It was and a given. following <laughs> in the footsteps of Mahatma Gandhi and Bertrand Russell. So uh, that way ironic but also we were pleased you took this amazing journey uh we're going to spend not too much time but we eight thousand miles you went yeah. across two and a half years two and a half years across yeah. the world you experienced mountain streams valleys climatic variances uh, so many people all that all and that. of course and what we went without any money and why was that can you just explain i realize <laughs> obviously but can you explain for uh, it was listeners? because um after making the decision to walk to Moscow, Paris, London, and Washington, D.C., we went to get blessings from our guru, our teacher, Vinoba Bhave, who you just mentioned. And Vinoba said that if you are going for peace, you have to go with complete trust in your heart because the root cause of war is fear. 
and the root cause of peace is trust. So uh, how do you trust people? If you have money, you will go to um, a village, you are tired, you are exhausted, uh, you will go to a restaurant to eat, you will find a B&B or a guest house to sleep, and you move away next day. You don't uh, need people, and you don't have to talk to anybody. So go without any money. But is there a very strong message that comes out of this for society today that is so materially money-driven? Absolutely. Strong message. Strong message that money should not be the goal in life. We should not live or work for money. Money should be only a means to an end. And that is what Vinoba is saying. By renouncing money at that time, he said that like you were a monk in your early life, go around the world preaching peace, but with full trust in your heart. Trust yourself. Trust the people, trust God, all will be well. And so, you know, and, and you have to take the advice of your guru. In India, uh, having a relationship with the guru is a very serious matter. You have to trust the guru first before you can trust the world. And so it was not a dilettante relationship. It was a serious relationship. So uh, if Vinoba said to us, um, uh, we did worry, the how are we going to survive? And I said to Vinoba, Vinoba, sometimes we might need to make a telephone call. Sometimes we might need to buy a postcard to write a message to you or our friends and our family. Sometimes we might need to have a little bit of money to buy a cup of tea. He said, no, don't worry. All shall be well, but don't take any money. And so we decided that this is the advice of Vinoba. We will go without any money. And for two and a half years, Menon and I walked 8,000 miles and we did not touch any money. And people gave us clothes and food and shelter. And when we did not get any food, and of course, there were days when we did not get any food, we said, this is our opportunity to fast and not complain about people not giving us food. And when, did not, when, did not, when we did not get any shelter, we said, this is our opportunity to sleep under the stars and not complain. And this way, we really went like two pilgrims, peace pilgrims. And, but a few days fasting, a few days sleeping under the stars caused no real hardship and problem because we took it positively. But 95, 98% of the time, we were uh, looked after, given hospitality, food, clothes, shelter, even transportation. Burton Russell himself um, and the peace, um, peace uh, movement in Britain helped us uh, to buy um, or give us two tickets in Queen Mary to uh, sail across the Atlantic from Southampton to New York. Um, and, and come to New York and walk to Washington, D.C. And, and also remaining time, uh, even the transportation, people paid for it. So we were looked after, and the trusting people paid off. 
And there are amazing values and, and uh, lessons to be learned for that. I, I am going to move on as we begin to near the end of the program. 19, yeah. uh, because this is interesting for me. 1973, you settle in beautiful Devon in England, and you become the editor of Resurgence magazine, yeah. which to this day is a formidable uh, publication. Yeah. Uh, you. I became editor in 1973 because I was visiting England, and I met... Uh, E.F. Schumacher, uh, who was the author of uh, Small is Beautiful. A very and, amazing uh, he, man. <laughs> at that time, um, he and his colleagues were looking for an editor uh, to uh, edit Resurgence magazine. And E.F. Schumacher said to me, that, Satish, why don't you become the editor of Resurgence and, and continue to edit? Um, so I said, but I want to go back to India and work with the Gandhian movement. And uh, Schumacher said, Satish, there are many Gandhians in India. We need one in England. Please stay and edit the magazine. This man, and of so course. so E.F. Schumacher inspired me to stay here. And so since 1973, I have been the editor of Resurgence magazine. And I am I'm very well read with Mr. Schumacher. Schumacher. Uh, very well indeed. He has a lot of very quiet but uh, critical messages for, for uh, a whole host of uh, political, um, industrial, climatic problems that we face today. And I always bracket him in with, of, of course, the, the words, the amazing words that come from people like Lincoln and others. He, he was an amazing man, and, and I would certainly suggest that people read this, this man's book because it is amazing about the way that you can keep something so small and yet gain so, so much out of it. And, you and are that, absolutely right. I think people interested in this sort of ideas uh, would be advised to read Small is Beautiful, and also he wrote Guide for the Perplexed, and that's a wonderful book. Yes. And, of course, you have been working uh, at, of course, this college for many years. You're a visiting fellow. Yeah. But how have you seen that in itself as an institution evolve in the last 10 or 20 years? No, we established Schumacher College in 1991 uh, in honor of E.F. Schumacher. But uh, it is not just uh, paying tribute to Schumacher and studying his ideas, but studying a whole host of ecological, holistic, um, and, and um, spiritual uh, studies. So um, uh, people like um, uh, Fritz of Capra or James Hillman or Wendell Berry or Amory Lovins, Vandana Shiva, people of this nature are the teachers at Schumacher College. They come regularly to teach there. And we pursue a kind of holistic approach to knowledge. And knowledge by itself is not enough. Um, knowledge must be complemented um, uh, and, uh, and a kind of uh, added to knowledge is experience. And when you are only knowledge and no experience, then knowledge can be very dangerous. But if you go through experience um, and uh, with, uh, with the combination of knowledge and experience, you create wisdom. Uh, Schumacher College is a place where we are not only in pursuit of knowledge, we are also in pursuit of wisdom, and that comes through experience. 
Since those days, uh, you have written many books, and I was going to go into this in more detail and perhaps the, the next program uh, w- that we can share together, but I was particularly interested in, in your autobiographies. Uh, you are, therefore, I am a Declaration of Independence, I thought uh, was an amazing book. I'm more interested, however, in your latest book. For me, this is absolutely fascinating, The Earth uh, Pilgrim. Pilgrim. Yes. Yes. I made a film for the BBC Two called Earth Pilgrim, and it was a film um, based on Dartmoor, a year on Dartmoor, showing the four seasons on Dartmoor, and a kind of spiritual um, view of nature, a reverential view of nature. Quite often, uh, human beings look at nature from a very scientific uh, view and look at nature as a, a source of um, uh, source of material um, for our benefit. So uh, we we need wood, we need water, we need uh, energy, and therefore nature will provide us. So nature is there for us. It's a kind of utilitarian view of nature. Whereas I am showing in my film, also in my book Earth Pilgrim, which became uh, as a kind of um, uh, a kind of complementary to the film. Earth Pilgrim book, I'm showing that nature has intrinsic value. Nature is not good only uh, only in terms of how useful it is to humans. Nature has goodness in itself, and we need to have that reverence for life, reverence for nature, uh, and I call it reverential ecology, so that um, there is a kind of symbiotic relationship, because we are dependent on nature. Uh, this is why I call it Declaration of Dependence uh, in my other book, You Are, Therefore I Am. May I interrupt there and just pose this to you? That's terribly interesting because are we not in a world now where people uh, look to the world as if the world and nature owes them rather than actually the other way around of we needing to con- uh, cultivate the world, cultivate nature, protect it? Absolutely, absolutely. We need to cultivate and we need to replenish nature because we are using nature all the time. And also we need to understand that we are nature. Nature means birth, natal, native, uh, nativity. Uh, They come from the same root. So nature means birth. Humans are born, therefore humans are as much nature as the trees, the animals, the rivers, the oceans, the mountains. So we are nature, and what we do to nature, we do to ourselves. If we pollute water and pollute air, we are polluting ourselves. And therefore, um, the outer landscape has to be balanced with the inner landscape. So uh, the spirituality of the inner landscape and ecology of the outer landscape form the two sides of the same coin. Can I ask you on another subject here in our final two or three minutes. I was very interested in looking at your website that you had commented on Avatar and I am most impressed upon taking uh, history to younger people now who may uh, not understand the old films like The Mission with De Niro where we decimated um, whole jungles and, uh, and indigenous tribes. And I saw that you had talked about Avatar. Yes. Um, and I was quite taken with that. It is no doubt in my mind that Jim Cameron in that film had actually found a way to educate our youngsters through a formidable 
a piece of work that they could understand technically to okay, actually okay. carry on that message of what we did, uh, the disturbance that we created so many hundreds of years ago. Yeah, absolutely. Now, in the name of civilization, in the name of development, in the name of progress, what we are doing to indigenous cultures and the natural world is the biggest question of our time. And once Mahatma Gandhi was asked, Mr. Gandhi, what do you think of Western civilization? And Mahatma Gandhi said, I think it would be a good idea. And that is the, the message of Avatar. Uh, all that technology, all that science of civilization is going there to devastate the natural and the indigenous um, way of life. And so uh, the film Avatar, in a very entertaining way and a very engaging way, give me a very subtle and a very profound message that we need to respect the natural world and we need to respect the indigenous cultures. And if we d destroy the natural world and the indigenous cultures, we are actually digging our own grave for our own civilization. And, and, and course, so we need to be on guard. And in the name of progress, and in the name of development, and in the name of science and technology, we must not devastate the natural world and the indigenous cultures. And of course, you are talking now about a, a bigger area of issues here that we could take a whole program over. And that is this word sustainability that is used so much because sustainability to me is not only about climate it's not only about oceans uh, it, it's about human beings it's about sustaining life it's about sustaining industry it's, a, it's about the way in which industrial leaders politicians and, and living, can work together living in a way that um, we, can, we can replenish the damage we do to the natural world and live in a resilient uh, way so that um, uh, life can sustain itself for millions of years to come and not just for a few uh, hundred years or, or few decades, but for millions of years. So we need to live in harmony with the natural world. The true sustainability means a cohesive and harmonious way of life. Could you, in the last two minutes, uh, please define the love of life, uh, the, the nature, the, the love of others that we should all pursue uh, in this journey that we, we, yeah. we have together? Quite often, environmentalists are driven by fear of doom and gloom and disaster and global warming and all the perils that are predicted. I am saying that fear is not a good motivation for environmentalism and for sustainability. It is the love of nature, love of life, love of people, love of community. Love is the basis. Love is the real power and motivation to be environmentalist and to work for sustainability. So power of love is greater than power or force of fear. Looking back now, uh, my final question for you today, what would you say is your finest, most uh, grandest memory uh, from your long journey thus far? My most inspiring uh, moment uh, during my whole life here 
um, uh, has been meeting with Martin Luther King. When I met him, I felt as if I was in the presence of a great human being, almost like an angelic human being. And uh, there was a kind of aura uh, emerging from his back. And, and his, his, his words and his um, presence was so inspiring that I felt that if this earth and this humanity can produce a human being like Martin Luther King, then there is a true hope for the future. Your magazine, which is so profoundly successful, uh, if I may ask you the uh, website address for that, for our listeners. So, um, if, if any of your listeners wish to contact me or find out more in depth about uh, my work, my ideas, my books, then they should visit www.resurgence.org. And resurgence is R-E-S-U-R-G-E-N-C-E. So www.resurgence.org. And may I ask, uh, what are your plans now in the future? Are there more books on the way? At this moment, my plans are to organize a great people's festival to celebrate 150th birth anniversary of another great human being, almost a great hero, uh, Rabindranath Tagore, um, Nobel Prize winning poet of India, contemporary of Mahatma Gandhi. And next year, there will be 150th birth anniversary. So we are planning uh, a big event where uh, arts, culture, poetry, dance, music, spirituality, sustainability can all come together. And that is my new plan. Dr. Sachish Kumar, it has been a great pleasure spending this program with you. Um, my goodness me, I wish we had more time. I would love to uh, do this with you again and have a follow-up program. It has been a, a real delight. Thank you. Pleasure. You are welcome. And for our listeners today, I hope that you have enjoyed this program as much as we have. You can gain information on this and any other program at the series at davidgibbons.org or you can visit our guest website uh, which will be uh, shown very clearly at davidgibbons.org as well and of course you have the blog site where our guest today will I'm sure be delighted to respond to any questions that you have. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon and good evening. David Gibbons in discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors.